The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2. Two, which stand outside of book one because most of the poems in book one are linked to David except Psalms one and two, which are anonymous. Psalm one celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now, the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically, it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David. David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now, with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So, for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. 
And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then Book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combined all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these 
in the book, which tells us something important: that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate. Earlier in the book, in books one through three, but pay attention because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament. Poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God. God's future messianic kingdom, and so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope—that's what the Book of Psalms is all about. Okay, awesome, man. That's a lot. That's a lot, but it's amazing that all that is in the Psalms. And if you're like me, sometimes we tend to think of them as individual Psalms. We even read them in individually, and we don't see the whole greater context. And uh, so hopefully that helps you see where we're at. So this morning, turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. Where are we on our journey to joy? Well, you see in your notes that the next three Psalms of Ascent that we're going to study, 123, 124, 125, cover the same, they follow the same pattern that we've seen in the first three Psalms of Ascent. So if you weren't here with us, you can see there in the chart that the first three, 120, 121, 122, followed the pattern of being stuck in a hostile place, lamenting, as we heard about. And then the next Psalm has God's people on the move together. And then the third Psalm will have us reaching and celebrating in the presence of God in the city of Jerusalem for them. And for us, we're still on our journey waiting to see the new Jerusalem in the kingdom, coming kingdom, and in the new creation. So I just want you to see that, that there's a very definite pattern. So again, we're seeing what, what the video showed us, that these psalms are put together in a pattern and in a way, and when you read through them, you can see that pattern. So let's look at Psalm 123. You see there's an overview of the structure of the song. And uh, it's basically a lament. So we heard that there's, there's fewer lament in the uh, end part of the book, but here's one. Um, and it's a lament of a faithful servant that's scorned by a hostile world. Kind of a relevant topic, I believe. And basically has a twofold structure. Verses 1 through 2 have the focused look of a servant scorned. His eyes look up to the Lord for sufficient grace and eventual deliverance. And then verses 3 through 4 has the fervent lament of a servant scorned. Here his lips long for the Lord to give sufficient grace, for he has had his fill of scorn. So open your Bibles there, Psalm 123, and let's see if you can see that kind of twofold structure in this very short, it's only four verses. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 123. To you, 
I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants or literally slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant, a female slave, to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Now, one way you know this is a lament, it ends with a prayer request, but with no answer yet. And so he's, he's, he's in a tough place, and he's had his fill. So we're going to look at two questions. How does a hostile world scorn the Lord's faithful servant? And then when that happens, how do we respond? How does a faithful servant respond to being scorned and ridiculed and mocked in a hostile world? So let's take a look at this. What, how does a hostile world scorn faithful servants? Because in this psalm, we're not told why they did it. All we know is the servants are being scorned, but we don't know why. What, what, what are they mocking? What are they doing? Well, when you study it out through Scripture, you're going to see there's reasons for this. So what is scornful contempt? Well, these words are found at the end of the psalm. So again, look at verses 3 and 4, and you see contempt is used in two times, and once in verse 3, once in verse 4, and then scoffing is there. And the ones doing it are people who are at ease and who are proud. And so when you study these two words in Scripture, you find that they're often found together in the Old Testament. And they refer to treating someone with an arrogant hostility that's characterized by at least three things. First of all, it involves facial expressions where eyes look down in condensation. I want to say condensation. Condescension. Lips curl up in contempt and heads wag with cynicism and so it, there's there's a, a look there's a snarl and a sneer of the lips and there are heads that just shake and say you know how could you be this dumb uh, it involves verbal expressions which include ridiculing scorning sneering and mocking that's the idea of scoffing and it involves attitudinal expressions. It comes from an attitude of the heart that's rooted in prideful superiority. That's why you look down. Personal ease. Hey, I've got it all together. Why don't you? And spiritual indifference. Because they are at ease and because they are proud. Now, all that brings together this idea. Spiritual contempt is three things. It's a condescending attitude. A condescending attitude that looks down on the faithfulness of God's servants on their journey to joy. So imagine you're on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you're traveling along, but you've got to travel through a hostile world of unbelieving people and also professing believers that are unfaithful. And they're looking down on you saying, why are you going to Jerusalem? Why are you wasting your time? Or in our case, why are you going to church? Why are you wasting your time? What a waste. How dumb can you get? Don't you believe in science? I love the political uh, party that keeps saying, we believe in science. And it's like, oh, so like if we're not with you, we don't believe in science? What's the implication? 
It's looking down on people that believe in creationism. It's looking down on people that take the Bible literally. You know, what, what's wrong with you? Don't you believe in science? Don't you know? What are you doing? Living in the dark ages? It's looking down on the faithfulness of God's servants. Number two, a critical attitude that tears apart. A critical attitude that tears apart the faithfulness of God's servants on their journey to joy. Things like, why give up your golf time or your fishing on Sundays for church? Do you mean you give 10% of your income to the church? You've got to be kidding me. You mean you actually take the Bible literally and study it and read it on a regular basis? That old thing made uh, written by men and full of errors? That's the idea. Number three, a cynical attitude that pokes fun at the faithfulness of God's servants on their journey to joy. So there's a condescending look down. There's a critical attitude that tears apart. And there's a cynical attitude that pokes fun at the faithfulness of us as God's servants. Look who got religion all of a sudden. It won't last. You're, what, are, what are you, a, a religious fanatic? Or worse, are you one of those radical fundamentalists? Hey, choir boy. Oh, watch out. Here comes the church lady. We better clean up our language. Religion is for losers. You're, are you one of those bigoted Christians? These are the types of contempt. That's scornful contempt. And that's what we experience if we are going to be faithful as servants. So here's the bottom line. I have it there in that box. Scornful contempt is a state of being despised. It's a state of being despised by proud people that leads to being mocked, taunted, bullied, persecuted for one's faithfulness to the Lord in a hateful and a hurtful manner. You better mark it down that being faithful to the Lord in this fallen world, you will receive hate and it will be hurtful. And that's the context of this song. Now, very quickly, I just want to give you five areas in which when you study these words out in Scripture, when you study them out in the Old Testament, there's five reasons why unbelievers or professing believers that are unfaithful will heap or show scornful contempt upon you. And, and we can assume that in Psalm 123, these folks were doing one, one, if not all of these. And here they are. Are you ready? The unbelieving and the unfaithful will always show scornful contempt for faithfully obeying God's will. For faithfully obeying God's will. Like all those do who are righteous in the sight of God. Hey, listen, there's no option for God's people but to obey His will, obey His word. And when we do, here's what happens. Psalm 119, verse 2. Listen to this. Take away my reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimony. Say, all I'm doing, Lord, is being obedient, but boy, I'm getting a, a truckload of contempt dumped on me. Please take it away. That's the idea of this psalm. Listen to Psalm 31, verse 18. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. Why do they do that? They're showing contempt because faithfulness to obeying God's will. Secondly, we'll get scorn and contempt 
for faithfully teaching God's Word. Just like the prophet Jeremiah, faithfully teaching God's Word. Listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, 7 through 8. Here's what, and, and, and he's lamenting. You know, this is the guy that wrote Lamentations, a whole book lamenting. This is the weeping prophet. You know why? Because he had a mass message of judgment that he was, he was teaching to God's people faithfully, and all he was getting back was contempt. Listen to what he says. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. Each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Listen, when you get pushback for sharing the gospel, when you get pushback for teaching God's word, don't be surprised. Jeremiah had it all day long. Uh, thirdly, for faithfully doing God's work. We will, be, we will get scorned, mocked. People will look down on us for faithfully doing God's work like the leader, Nehemiah. Probably the classic example of scorn and contempt for doing God's work is Nehemiah. You might want to turn there. Nehemiah uh, chapter 4. Please turn there to Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through uh, 7. 1 through 7. So... Here's what's interesting. Nehemiah has led the group of people back, what? To Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Why? So they can rebuild the temple. Why? So they can gather in God's presence with God's people in God's place. Well, guess what? The unbelieving and the unfaithful don't want that to happen. So here's what happens. There's a guy by the name of Sanballat. Sounds like a bad guy, doesn't it? Sanballat who was a Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. And what happens is these are unbelieving people, uh, people from the nations of the world that did not believe in the God of Israel. And here's what they say in chapter uh, Nehemiah 4, 1. Now it came about when Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. So you see the attitude that is behind the mocking, okay? He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, see, the men who were at ease, the men who were self-secure, self-sufficient, and secure in themselves, influential, powerful men of Samaria. And here's what he says. Here's the mocking. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they're building. If a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So you see the mocking, you see the scorn, you see the, the ridicule. And what does Nehemiah do in the people uh, who have returned to build the wall? Nehemiah 4.4, here... Oh, our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads. Give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. And yet, in verse 6, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. 
They were faithful, even though they were scorned. And now what happens, verse 7, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. There's the attitude. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. And you could go on, but you see, there's a classic idea, doing the work of God. Uh, Next, faithfully pursuing God's worship. As you seek to make worship a priority, you will be scorned in this culture. You will be scorned by the unbelieving, the unfaithful, like the messengers of King Hezekiah. I wish we had the time. 2 Chronicles 30 is a great passage. And what has happened is Hezekiah was finally a godly king. And things had gotten so bad in Jerusalem that people were no longer making the three times a year journey to Jerusalem. They hadn't celebrated Passover forever. And suddenly, King Hezekiah, he reads the law, the Torah, the law of God, and he says, look, we need to do this, people. So he sends out messengers throughout the land, and he says, look, we're going to have this big Passover celebration. We need to come to Jerusalem. We need to unite in the presence of God. We need to repent We haven't been doing this. Let's do it. And so he sends out these messengers. But listen, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10. So the couriers passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Listen, as you seek to faithfully worship God and put the worship of God and the work of God through his local church in a priority, you will get scorned and you will get contempt. And then finally, faithfully being God's witness. Faithfully being God's witness. And for that, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is probably the classic New Testament passage about scorning and contempt being heaped on God's faithful people. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 13. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 13. I want you to see what it says. Know this first of all, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, what's going to come? Mockers will come with their with their mocking. Mockers will come with their scorners, will come with their scorning. Don't be surprised, following after their own lust, saying, and here's the mocking. See, it's a verbal thing. Where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Or as people would say today, hey, evolution will happen no matter what. Nothing's going to change. And you really look at our country. The people in our country, our culture is just continuing on as if, hey, there's not judgment that's about ready to fall. This is all going to be good. It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm a little anxious about who gets elected, but in the end... 
It'll all be good. Well, no. Notice verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice by the, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, looking for and hastening the coming, coming day of God? Why, how? By our witnessing, our faithful witness because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will be melt with intense heat. But, now here's us on our journey to joy, but according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, when that's your message, you're going to be mocked. When that's your goal, you're going to be scorned. And here's the good news. Jesus also suffered scornful contempt from the unbelieving and the unfaithful for these same reasons. In fact, you could go through the Gospels and you can go through and you can find that when he was obedient, he was scorned by family members. When he performed miracles doing the work of the Lord, he was called the son of the devil. When he was faithful, to pursue God's worship by heading to Jerusalem. And when he hung on that cross, that was when he was doing the ultimate act of worship. And as he performed the ultimate act of worship in your place and mine, you know what they said to him? Why aren't you saved others? Why aren't you saved yourself? Look at the king of, Israel, of Jerusalem. Come down off that cross. They mocked. They snarled, they wagged their heads in disgust, and they heaped scorn on the one who was sinless. They, he, they heaped our scorn on our Savior. Wow. And by faithfully being God's witness and sinless substitute, as a faithful servant and obedient son, he suffered our scorn on the cross. And probably the classic place to look for that is Psalm 22. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. And I want you to see that everything that happened that day, that afternoon on the cross, was predicted in Psalm 22. Because God's faithful servants will always suffer scorn and contempt. Look at Psalm 22 and notice what he says. You're going to immediately recognize the first verse of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Sounds very much like Psalm 123. In, your, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not. That's Psalm 123 as well. But notice what he says. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. Scorn. Look, 
Verse 7, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. There it is, the scornful contempt. Saying, and here comes the words, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Those are the very words that were said there at the cross when Jesus died. Yet, look at verse 9, you who... You are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. In other words, you gave me life and I'm going to trust you as I face death. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. So... Wow, having said all that, are we going to suffer scorn? We are, if we're faithful. So here's the bottom line. If we're professing believers in Christ, as most of us are, if we're not suffering scorn, it's really only one of two reasons. One, we're not being faithful to work, to witness, to do His will. Or God is being extremely gracious and holding back the contempt. But I think those days are passing. So how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to the scorn and the contempt? That's what Psalm 123 helps us to do. And so let's look at that. There's four responses that I want you to consider today. The first is the posture of a servant. Take on the posture of a servant when you are scorned. Look at verse 1, Psalm 123. To you... I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So, to you, we lift up your eyes. You know what that speaks of? Where's your focus when people ridicule you for being a Christian? The focus needs to be on who? God. It needs to be on God, not the people, not the hurt, not the pain. We must fixate on the, we must not fixate on the problem people or their hateful and hurtful words about our faithfulness, our righteousness, our commitment. We need to lift up our eyes. We need to elevate and fixate on the one who is in charge. Get our attention on the only one who really matters in this life. The, and, 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 and who is the one that we lift our eyes up to? What's the psalm say? Oh, you who are enthroned on the heavens. So let's talk about that a little bit. Who's the one enthroned? Well, down in verses 2 and 3, it's the Lord our God. We lift our eyes up not to a divine dictator who's mean and far away like the God of Islam. We lift our eyes up to the Lord, the promise keeper, the ultimate redeemer, the one who ultimately became a man that he might know our needs and meet our needs. We look up to the Lord God, but the focus is on his sovereignty, enthroned in the heavens. So how is he enthroned? The word enthroned there speaks of a throne that has been set and it's not going to move. It's set and he has sat and it is stable and no one's going to move him. No one's going to unseat him. 
all hell is breaking loose down here. I have had my fill of scorn, but I look up to the heavens and I see God, my God, our God is in charge and he's stable. And where is he enthroned? In the heavens. That means he's over everything. There's nothing that can reach up and pull him down. And yet we have access to him. And why is he enthroned? Listen, when it says God's sitting there, he's not sitting there sleeping. He's not sitting there slumbering. He's active, he's got authority, and he's attentive to what's going on down here. Can we shout hallelujah to that? Listen, listen, we've got a God that's actively ruling and he's so attentive that he knows exactly what's going on in your life and your life and your life. And he's attentive and he's authoritative and he's 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 in charge. He's large and in charge. Look up to him. This is why we lift our eyes up there, because he's the sovereign ruler. And listen, if it's, his, if it's his sovereign will that we suffer scorn for, some, uh, for, for a limited time, then so be it. Then so be it. If he chooses to, to let us escape the scorn, so be it. If he chooses to give us grace to endure, so be it. I'm going to take the posture of a servant scorned and I'm going to submit myself. Listen, we don't look down on the Lord to tell him what to do. We don't look over to the Lord as if he's our equal and we can make a, you know, Lord, in case you didn't know, this is how many of us pray, right? We often pray, Lord, just want to fill you in here for a few minutes on, on how things are going down here and what you need to do. No, we look up to one who is our superior. So take the posture of a servant, which leads right into the second response we should have to the scorn, and it's the patience of a servant scorned. How do I know I have the posture of a servant? When I'm willing to be patient and wait on God for as long as it takes for Him to deliver us. Look at verse 2. This is kind of the heartbeat of this posture It's the patience. Behold, as the servants, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Now you look at verse 2. Eyes is the focus, repeated three times. And here we see the posture of a scorned servant is proven by our patience as we wait on our master to grant us grace to either endure more scorn or escape the scornful contempt. And he says, behold, it grabs our attention. And he's saying, hey, look, look at how a male slave looks at the hand of his servant. Look at how a female slave looks. And you say, I have no clue what that means. And neither do I. Why? Because we don't live with slaves like that. But if you were in the Far East, like where this is written, if you were in the culture of the Middle East in those days, slaves would stand uh, on the the outer part of of a room and they would stand quietly and their master would not give verbal commands. He would give little gestures. He wouldn't even speak. 
So if you were going to be a faithful servant, what did you have to do? You had to focus on his hands because if you missed the signal of an unbelieving master, there were consequences to pay. And the reason he mentions female slaves, because in those cultures they were more abusive and harder and harsher on the female slaves. So the female slaves had to be really attentive. And what the psalmist is saying is, look, you know what? We need to be so attentive to the and fixate on the Lord our deliverer that we need to pay attention like a female slave would look for the slightest gesture. Now, the idea here is not getting help uh, or receiving orders, you know, like come get my food, come take away my plate. The idea is we're in a difficult spot and we're waiting for the hand of the Lord to say, all right, I'll set you free. Okay, I'm going to deliver you. Okay, I'm going to judge those who scorn you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've been in situations where I'm being scorned and I've suffered contempt for being faithful, not sinless, but faithful, what I have found is you do need to pay attention to the Lord because you want to quit, you want to give up, you want to seek revenge, you want to defend yourself, and you know that's not the posture of a servant. And so you say, Lord, I'm waiting on you, but I can't take much more of this. And what I have found in my life anyway is he subtly will say to me, often in my grow group, through what we're learning, through what we're praying, the Lord will subtly and quietly kind of indicate with his hand, stay put. Stay put. It's going to be okay. And even though it's not the answer you want, it's coming from the sovereign Savior, the gracious one, the deliverer that says, stay put. It's my will that you endure, but I'm going to get you through. And once I I see that little subtle indication, him speaking to my spirit in the fellowship and community of a group or in prayer or listening, sometimes it's driving down the road and hearing a song and the Lord says, this is for you. Stay put. It's okay. I've got this. And even when it's not the answer you want, you wait knowing that he's saying it's, it's going to come, but you've got to wait. Because after all, I'm the master and you're not. Amen. Is that just good stuff? That is the idea. And so the idea is our eyes look to the, the Lord our God and we fixate. And we don't look away until he is gracious to us but patiently waiting on the Lord to be gracious to us is not passive surrender or a fatalistic case, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be, I'll just endure this, who knows what's going to happen. The true posture and patience of a servant is seen number three in the plea of a servant scorned. As you are patiently waiting, as you have submitted yourself We plea to the Lord. Look at verse 3. Having assumed the posture, 
and having been and having committed to being patient here's verse 3 be gracious to us o lord be gracious to us for we are greatly filled with contempt and we saw this is exactly what Nehemiah did when they were scorned what they do they didn't retaliate they prayed they prayed but this is more than a prayer look at verse 3 this is more of a more than a prayer this is a fervent plea for help for gracious deliverance and if you don't give me gracious deliverance lord at least give me sufficient grace to endure amen Here's the deal. I'm pleading for grace. Either grace to endure or grace to escape. But all I'm telling you, God, is I have had my fill. You ever been there? And I'm not talking had your fill because you got a a crazy boss or a crazy family member. I'm talking about you've had your fill because you're faithful and you just get kicked in the teeth for the faithfulness. Are you with me? Listen to it. Listen. Let the psalm listen. Let the psalms feel the emotion. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. We have had our fill. I have had it up to here, God. I need grace. Is that good? What does the word grace mean? Some of your Bibles have mercy. Some of your Bibles have it translated as show favor. The reason there's so many trans, uh, ways to translate is not because the Bible's inaccurate. It's because the Word of God's so powerful, English can't contain all the meanings of these words. Amen? And the point is this. Lord, you're the master. I'm the servant. And being faithful to you gets this kind of response. So I can't demand that this is wrong. I can't demand my rights. I don't have any rights. I'm your slave. And if you have me going through this, then the only way I'm going to get out of it is if you show me grace what I don't deserve. Are you with me? So sometimes we Christians, you know, we, and, and some false teachers will tell you, go to God and demand your rights. That's not what you see here. I don't have a right, Lord. I'm a slave. And faithful slaves in this world swim upstream. And that means there's friction and there's scorn and there's contempt. But all I'm telling you is I've had my fill. And without your grace, sufficient grace to endure, I'm not going to make it. And without sufficient grace to escape, I can't deliver myself. So that's the idea. I think the idea is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, mock me, scorn me, contempt, to keep me from exalting myself. And look at this. Considering, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times. Implored, I plead. That was a fervent plea. Lord, remove this. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfect in weakness. What I got out of Psalm 123 this week is this. This is a plea for sufficient grace. Lord, I just need enough grace to get me through. I just need enough grace to get me out. But I can't demand it. 
I don't deserve it, but let me tell you, I'm going to keep asking for it. And that brings us then to the question, how long do we assume the posture of a servant? How, how long are we to be patiently waiting? How long do we persist in prayer? That brings us to number four, the perseverance of a servant scorned. And so we come to verse four, and now we've gone from prayer to plea to lament. Now we're in full-blown lament, and here's what he's saying. My soul is greatly filled, which means filled to overflowing. With what? With scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt. I I just love this. Lord, I've had... Moms, you ever said this? I've had it up to here with these kids, right? I had it up to here. I've had my fill with you. And what he's complaining to the Lord, he says, look, I've been faithful And I have had my fill of mocking. I have had my fill of scoffing. And he's just lamenting. And and it ends. It just ends. Why? Because lament is where you're just waiting. And who are those that are scoffing? And I gave you kind of a little ends. What happens when God doesn't deliver immediately? Here's your answer. Is there life after lamenting? Yes. Number one, never forget our God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, they will also reap. There's the same idea. Those that scorn God, they're not getting away with it because God's going to scorn them. You mock God, he gets, literally, the point here is, God gets the last what? Laugh. And he'll mock the nations that mock him, and he will mock individuals that mock him. Secondly, be forewarned, God is not mocked. For whoever scorns and mocks and rejects the redemption and rule of his son will suffer their fiery scorn and contempt in eternal judgment. When you go to Daniel 12, 1 and 2, Daniel describes hell in this way. Listen to this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Ow! See, that's a view of God that we don't get a lot. The view is this. This loving, gracious God is also a God of holy wrath and judgment. And when He throws the unbeliever into eternal damnation... He will mock them for eternity. Because God is not mocked. And that which a man or a woman sows, he will also reap. Wow. This is serious stuff. So here's the thing. If you're lamenting and you're being scorned and God's not delivering, understand this, there's a payday someday. And those that reject him will forever be scorned by him. Now, I left you with Psalm 2. You'll have to read that. It is a gospel message to those who scorn God's people. And it basically says this. Stop before it's too late. And assume the posture of a servant. And give praise to the king and the coming king. So 
I leave you with your application. When, have you had, when you have had your fill of being scorned by the unbelieving, check your posture, check your patience, check your plea, and check your perseverance. But I want to end with this. I had to do this, and I'm asking you to do it. Go before the Lord this afternoon, this week, before you slumber a little bit this afternoon, and ask, Am I really suffering scorn? Am I really being a faithful witness? Am I really being a faithful worshiper? Is there anything to really mock concerning my faithfulness to the Lord? Okay? And then secondly, look at how do I respond when I am scorned? Some of you live with unbelieving spouses. Some of you have contact with unbelieving family members. And scorning and contempt and ridicule, though subtle it may be, can wear you down. Amen? And just check your posture. Check your prayers. Check your patience. And check your perseverance. And know that God is not mocked. And whatever we sow, we will reap. Amen? I don't know about you, but I think these are, day, these are, these are lessons for the days ahead. But some of you may be in it right now. Take comfort from the God who is enthroned. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we are glad that you're enthroned in the heavens. You're stable, you're secure, you're seated, you're ruling. Help me to remember that when I'm frustrated, rejected, ridiculed. Lord, I think many a Christian fails to witness day to day out of fear of ridicule, scorn, and contempt. And in this song, we're reminded that we have a greater calling and we have a greater purpose and that we can endure because you endured. And we will one day escape because you were risen from the dead and you ascended and you're coming back. And Lord, we don't gleefully think about the contempt you will heap on the unbelieving but we have your heart who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we should be broken, Lord, to share your mercy. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son before it's too late. May we go forth tomorrow, even today, with the message of the gospel that there's forgiveness for even the scornful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.